Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Freedom Forum Radio is for you, faithful listeners, no matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics. It's about principle. It's not about candidates. It's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about freedom, individual freedom, your freedom, where it comes from, what it means to you, and most importantly, how to hang on to it. Do you ever have the feeling that something is wrong? You try the usual tricks, the usual tactics, but nothing seems to work to fix the problem that you perceive as being wrong. That leads to frustration. Well, right now, faithful listeners in this country, millions of you know that something is wrong. Our founders, the ratifiers of our Constitution, gave us ways to fix that. They gave us techniques to use. They gave us tricks to use. They gave us remedies to use in order to fix things when they weren't right. First of all, they gave us Article 1, Section 8, the enumerated powers. These are the powers that the ratifiers and the Constitution gave to the federal government. The sovereign states were a party to that Constitution, and they gave the federal government limited powers, enumerated in Article 1, Section 8. In the Constitution itself, there are checks and balances between the branches, three co-equal branches. Checks and balances were put in place so that one branch couldn't become more powerful than the other. They gave us the vote so that we had a say and an input into who represents us in our constitutional republic that they gave us. They gave us the First Amendment, freedom of the press, knowing that a free press can investigate the wrongs, can write about the wrongs, can influence people, can do its job by outing the wrongs and outing the wrongdoers. They gave us the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and there was no question in the minds and the hearts of our ratifiers that the purpose of the Second Amendment was to prevent tyranny in government. They gave us the rest of the amendments, and especially the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment, 
which solidifies once and for all in writing that the ultimate power in this country rests in the sovereign states and the people in the sovereign states. They gave us all of the tricks, all of the tools to keep the ship of state sailing correctly in the right course. But something is wrong, isn't it? We know it. Millions of us do. And so it's important that we discuss the rightful remedy. How can the states take back power from the federal government that has exceeded its power, usurped power, expanded beyond the bounds ever envisioned by our founding fathers? You're listening to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum with a very special interview with Michael Meharan. We pick up right now where we left off last week. And a guy named George Nichols, who was kind of a mediator between the two parties, stepped in and he made a speech on the, on the floor of that convention. And it was kind of the thing that swayed the ratifiers in Virginia towards making the ultimate decision to ratify. And this was the argument that he made. He explained it like a contract, and he said... If you've got 13 people that are entering into a contract, and one of those parties says, this is how I understand this contract, and I am telling you right now that if you try to create any new powers within this agreement that are outside of my understanding, that he and he uses these words, I will be exonerated from it. He says, if we... Make this agreement with that understanding. Will that not understanding not bind the other 13 parties or the other 12 parties to this contract? He said, in the same way, when we, as the state of Virginia, ratify this Constitution and say we understand the clear meaning and we understand the limits on power, that will bind the other states and it will protect us. It will give us an out. We will be exonerated if the federal government oversteps those limits. So... Basically, the analogy used is if you and a few of your friends have a business agreement, you all agree that you're going to start a business, and the group of you all agree that you're going to have the profits figured out on gross income. Well, then five years later, six of those guys come along and say to you, no, you know what, we're going to, we're going to figure out the profits on, on net income now. You would be exonerated from that stipulation because it's not part of the original agreement. Nichols, Nicholas made this perfectly clear. That swayed the Virginia Ratification Convention. They did ratify. But it shows the intent of the ratifiers. And as we discussed earlier, those are the people that count because they're the ones that were representing the people that were agreeing to the Constitution in the first place. So this is deeply rooted in ratification history. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, nullification becomes really not questionable. And we can talk about court cases and what Marshall said, and, and we can you know, argue about whether Madison meant this or that in 1828. But the bottom line is when you look at it in the very basic structure of the Constitution itself, nullification has to be legitimate. And it's necessary because if you don't have some mechanism to hold that government to its limited powers, then it in essence becomes an unlimited tyrannical government. There's really no question in my mind about what you said, because you cannot have 
the non-justices of the, of the Supreme Court deciding what the power of the federal government should be, because you're right, they are federal employees. You know, back 200 years ago, you might have been able to argue that these justices of the Supreme Court were learned, honest men who understood the law, who understood morality, and who acted with a, a, a deep conviction of both. But these days, that's not what the Supreme Court is. The Supreme Court is a group of nine federal employees that are there because of their political beliefs, and they are placed on the court by the political parties because they agree with the agendas of the political parties involved. So they are hardly impartial. They cannot be considered as a group that goes back to its deep roots looking at the Constitution and the intent of the people who wrote it and the people who ratified it. These are nothing more, the Supreme Court is nothing more than another branch of the federal government. And under those circumstances, allowing it to determine what's constitutional or what's, what the limit of power is, is just absurd. Exactly. You know, in Madison, he made it clear in his report of 1800, where he was defending the Virginia Resolution, that the court has a very important role. And he did acknowledge that the Supreme Court was the final judge when it came to a issue between the various branches of the federal government itself. In other words, the Supreme Court's view of the constitutionality of an act takes precedence over the president or Congress. Madison agreed with that long before uh, Marshall made his proclamation in the uh, Marbury versus Madison ruling. So we're not arguing that the Supreme Court doesn't have a role. What we're saying is that role is not to determine the extent of federal power in the last resort. In fact, if we look at what the judiciary is supposed to do, the judiciary rules on cases. I mean, not really supposed to rule for the whole United States. A ruling is binding the parties in the case. We've let that grow to when they make a ruling in a specific case to all of a sudden encompass you know, all things in all situations. And it's, it's really a, a gross misunderstanding of judicial power. And, and in essence, with, as uh, scholar Raul Berger said, we've, we've created a system of government by judiciary instead of a government by representation. And that's not, it's not what was intended. And, you know, sometimes the court makes the right decision. And sometimes they don't. And when they don't, there has to be a check on them as well as on the other branches of the government. Well, the Supreme Court cannot be considered infallible. They obviously have made some decisions, a lot of them during uh, FDR's rule, uh, that were clearly unconstitutional, had absolutely no basis in constitutionality, were completely contrary to the to the intent of the of the ratifiers and the the, the founders. So the Supreme Court has, in the course of history, uh, shown itself to be an unreliable arbiter of anything, to be honest with you. And to now, oh, yeah. to, you know, I mean, to now all of a sudden say, okay, well, you have done such a poor job up to now, we're going to let you now decide how strong the federal government should be. That's, again, completely illogical. Right. And we can look at, we can look at the results. To make our case, you know, we look through the, the history and we've seen federal power. There's, there's nobody that can look at the framers and the ratifiers' understanding of the Constitution and look at what the federal government does today and see any type of connect. 
I mean, one of the examples I like to use, people will, people will question, well, maybe the federal government does have the power to have a war on drugs and you know, regulate marijuana and whatnot. And I always ask them the question, if that's true, then why was it that when they decided that they wanted to regulate alcohol at the federal level that they had to pass amendments? Obviously, something's changed between now and then, and that change has been the slow, incessant growth and creep of overreaching federal power. Interesting little uh, historical fact from the founding until the mid-'90s, the Supreme Court had only ruled 159 acts unconstitutional by virtue of actually going into the Constitution and saying this violates the Constitution. When you consider the numbers of acts that have been passed by Congress from the founding into the mid-90s, and you see that they've only overturned 159 of those based on constitutionality. That is pretty amazing and shows just how weighted the system is towards federal power. Basically, the Supreme Court rubber stamps federal power. That's what we've seen through history, with a few exceptions. Well, and we know that to be the case, because when you look at history, you see where we are today. Uh, a lot of the programs, uh, the agenda of the progressive movement has been rubber stamped by the Supreme Court, uh, sometimes under threat, as FDR did, sometimes because people put on the court were put on by parties who had a progressive agenda. So they cannot be considered at all uh, to be a faithful arbiter of the Constitution. Uh, they can think they are, but they haven't proven it. So now we've discussed really the meat of this argument, and that is we've talked about who decides constitutionality and the supremacy clause. And as far as I'm concerned, your, your, uh, your views really mirror mine. And that is, is that states being the sovereigns that they are and the people of the states, that we do have the right to nullify federal laws that are unconstitutional, and we have the right to uh, not enforce federal laws, to decline to participate, uh, whatever. So we do have in the states um, these rights. They, they were ours from the beginning, and in nowhere did we actually say we're going to give them up. So from a practical point of view, uh, today, obviously, the gun gun laws are at the forefront of the debate on nullification at this point. How do you see that playing out uh, nationally at this time? Well, I think it's interesting to, to look at the fervor that this has actually created. And I kind of compare it a little bit going back to the Sedition Acts. You know, that was such an egregious violation of the First Amendment. Now we're seeing the potential of an equally egregious threat to the Second Amendment through uh, the you know weapons bans and the registration and all of these different things. My view, and I think this would have been the view of the of the founders and the ratifiers, is that the federal government really has absolutely no authority to regulate firearms in any way, shape, or form. I agree. The states do. But under the Constitution, the federal government has absolutely no authority. Number one, there's no enumerated power. Nowhere is the federal government given the power to regulate firearms. And then we have, on top of that, the Second Amendment, which places further restrictions on the power of the federal government. Basically, the Second Amendment says, even when exercising your legitimately delegated powers, you may not infringe, and that means interfere with, the right to keep and bear arms. So 
It's a double whammy. There's no delegated power. And then on top of that, there's the forbidding of infringing on that right, even when exercising legitimate power. So you can't even argue that, well, the federal government has the power to regulate interstate commerce, so therefore they could regulate gun sales. No. They can regulate interstate commerce, but they still cannot infringe on the right to keep and bear arms. So this is, to me, a very obvious usurpation of power. And I think a large body of Americans recognize that, and that's why you've seen such a powerful pushback against even the potential. I mean, let's be honest, other than all of the unconstitutional laws that they passed before, they've not passed anything yet uh, new. So this is almost a reaction to just the potential of a, of a usurpation. And I think it's incredible to see that Americans are finally standing up and recognizing, hey, we need to be proactive and we need to protect this, this most basic right. Well, this is really so important because guns in the hands of individual citizens are the greatest single threat to tyrants, and they know it. Uh, Absolutely. I'm, I'm reading a book right now which is chronicling the British efforts to limit, confiscate, and take away the arms of the colonists prior to the revolution. And I've learned a lot that I didn't even, even know. Uh, my government school education didn't teach me a lot of this stuff. But, but the whole regulation of firearms was a central issue between the col colonists and the British in 1774-1775. You had General Gage in Boston that was actively seizing arms. He was seizing powder. Uh, we had a proclamation by King George forbidding the importation of arms into the colonies. Uh, the well, well, that's really first right. shots of the war right. were the result of the British coming to seize, to seize gunpowder. So There's no question about it. Central. So, absolutely, and that's really so important now because millions of people understand that the government is way out of control, and most of them understand as well that without the right to keep and bear arms, there is absolutely no way uh, that we can ever hope to control the federal government's usurpation of power. Uh, universal gun registration leads to selective confiscation, which leads to the incarceration and extermination of selected individuals who are unable to defend and themselves because they are disarmed. That has exactly. been the course of history. Well, Michael Meharry, this has been an incredible discussion of probably what is the most important issue of our time, the rights of states to nullify unconstitutional acts of the federal government. I want to again urge my readers, my listeners to read your book, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty, Michael Meharry, the Tenth Amendment Center. It has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so very, very much for appearing on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Oh, it's, it's been a wonderful experience, and I will want to reemphasize my book actually lays out the moral, philosophical, and historical case for nullification in great detail. So if you want to get more of what we've talked about today, it's a great book as, long, as well as Tom Woods' book, which is just called Nullification, another great source. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Oh, me the mischief! Oh, me the wind! 
Thank <laughs> you. 